Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. this passage in the in the advent season but here we are it's where we are in the schedule we're looking at ephesians 5 verse 21 to chapter 6 verse 9 i think it could appropriately be titled an instruction manual for husbands wives children and slaves I'd like to simply read the passage. Before we go further, you can follow along if you have a Bible. I'm reading from the NIV, verse 21 and following. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism 
with him. How should these texts be read? What I'd like to do over the next few minutes is reflect on three different approaches that people have taken to these texts, and there are doubtlessly more than three, and these three are not mutually exclusive. We don't necessarily have to sort of pick one and completely exclude the other two, but I think it's worth noting how Christians across the centuries have approached these texts in somewhat different ways. The first approach it would go something like this. Since Paul's words are inspired by God, then these instructions are to be read as timeless and binding on everyone, everywhere, just like every other scripture, because that's what it means for scripture to be God's word for us. And so it's possible to approach this passage in a manner somewhat like that. The assumption with this approach is that the Bible should always be read in the most literal, straightforward sense possible. A phrase that I heard fairly often growing up that you may have heard somewhere along the way went something like this. If the literal sense makes sense, any other sense is nonsense. So it's kind of a clever, cute, but easy way to remember the fundamental principle of biblical interpretation. You start with the interpretation that's just most straightforward, that's most literal. You simply read the words and ask yourself, do I understand these words? Do I know what they're saying? And if the words make sense, and if you can sort of put them into practice in a very straightforward, literal way, well, then don't go around looking for some other way to interpret them. I suspect that many Christians would affirm this general approach. I think there's a lot about it that I like. I think many people would say that's the way they read scripture. But I think that often what maybe they or we or I haven't thought very carefully about is how we actually apply that principle. Because the way it ends up working is more something like this, that we're pretty committed to the literal sense when it makes sense to me. Well, and once you sort of crack that door open and you realize just how difficult it might be to sort of define what you mean by makes sense, then you might start to wonder whether this is actually the most helpful guiding principle of biblical interpretation or not. So to, to take an example, Peter ends his letter 
with the instructions to greet one another with a kiss of love. If the literal sense makes sense, any other sense is nonsense. What is the literal sense of Peter's instruction? Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Kiss each other. Does does the literal sense make sense? Well, there's certainly nothing difficult about the words, nothing mysterious about the words themselves. And yet, most Christians in this country, at this moment in history, don't actually do this. I can't say for sure, but I didn't notice when I came into chapel, I didn't actually see anyone kissing anyone else as you sort of greeted each other in the chapel or in the lobby. I didn't even see the instructors kissing each other. I didn't even see Phil, who teaches PBI, kissing anyone, although I may have missed it. So does the literal sense make sense? Well, it depends what you mean by make sense, doesn't it? Make sense turns out in the end to mean something like, does this seem like something God would actually want me to do? And most Christians in the 21st century in our country have concluded that, no, that actually isn't an important thing in God's eyes, and it's not necessarily something he wants us to do, even though Peter's instructions are completely clear, completely straightforward, unambiguous. The literal sense makes perfect sense at the level of the vocabulary and the definition of words. So, is that a helpful interpretive tool? Is that the way, is that the way that we really ought to approach Ephesians 5:21 to 6, 9, just to read the words and say, well, like I understand the words, I know what that means, and so let's do it. I defer to Phil and PBI. <laughs> Let me propose that I don't find that principle finally to be an especially helpful one because I don't see it actually being especially helpful even for the people who might say that's the way they approach biblical interpretation because actually there's something else going on that's allowing them and us to distinguish between the times when we do, in fact, embrace a literal reading of instructions and the times when we decide, actually, we don't need to embrace a kind of literal application. So let's move on from that approach. It is an approach, and it is a way that you can read every scripture, any scripture, does it give guidance? Well, yes, in a sense it does although you're still left with that question mark over the words makes sense. If it makes sense, what does that mean? 
How do, how do we understand that? There's another approach <clears throat> that many people have taken. <clears throat> to this text, and to many others. It goes something like this. We simply say, these are instructions that were understandable and seemed relevant to the readers in the world in which they were written, but they no longer are either understandable or relevant, or at least not relevant. And so, because they're not, we simply look at them and we say, well, it made sense for that, for that time. It made sense for that culture. <clears throat> but the world's a different place and it doesn't make sense anymore to think that we take those instructions and simply apply them to our context, to our lives. So how would this work if we did that in the context of Paul's instruction manual? And particularly, if we're thinking about the relationship between husbands and wives and slaves, the children part doesn't seem to have um, been very difficult to sort of stretch across the years. Most, most parents remain quite happy to apply a fairly literal, straightforward reading to this text, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. I think it's probably one of the first verses I memorized after Jesus wept and oh taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know why that one came next, but, um, but children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Like that has not been terribly controversial across the history of the church with regard to how it ought to be sort of worked out in the context of family life. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, nor has it been especially controversial, Paul's instructions to fathers to not exasperate their children. I mean, that just seems like a good idea. Like, don't, don't exasperate your children unnecessarily. Like, just be reasonable. But this wives and husbands piece and the slave piece, that's been a little more challenging. <clears throat> because in the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, his readers took patriarchy for granted. I think we can safely assume that, that no one in Ephesus would have read this letter and kind of wrinkled their brow and said, really? You want wives to submit to your husbands in everything? Now, I might be wrong. I wasn't in Ephesus then, um, even though I have been here a long time, Dan. I'd like to read an excerpt from something I prepared for an annual conference of CMC a few years ago, in 2017, actually. One writer summarizes the Jewish context like this, the Jewish context in which Paul was born 
in which he was nurtured and the Jewish context into which Jesus was born. One writer summarizes it like this, quote, women occupied vulnerable territory within Judaism. They had little access to property or inheritance except through a male. Any money a woman earned belonged to her husband. Men could legally divorce a woman for almost any reason simply by handing her a writ of divorce. A woman, however, could not divorce her husband. In the centuries just prior to Christ's birth, we find Roman society occasionally having public discussions about how women fit into the social fabric. In approximately 200 BC, women in the city of Rome had joined in protesting a law that prevented them from using jewelry and fine clothes to display their status in public. A conservative senator named Cato thought that it was shameful for women to be appealing to politicians. That in itself, he said, was evidence that men had lost control of their wives and couldn't keep them at home. The law was eventually repealed, thanks in part to the arguments like this one offered by the tribune, the Roman tribune, Valerius, who made the following case for why we really ought to get rid of this law. Quote, give the women their baubles. These will satisfy their trivial minds and keep them from interfering in more serious matters. That's the ancient world. That's the world that Ephesus would have known instinctively, as far as we can tell. That's the world in which Paul writes these instructions. So, in this sort of second approach to reading these scriptures, we simply say, look, these instructions might have made sense in Ephesus, and from everything we know, they simply would have been non-controversial, expected, completely straightforward, not only with regard to women and men, husbands and wives, but also with regard to slaves. When Paul says, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. No one was likely to say, is Paul condoning slavery? Do you think that's okay? Nobody challenged slavery. Now, it's interesting that in our day, there's all sorts of inter- there's arguments that unfold in Bible translation about whether slavery is the best word. And if you want to do, if, if you want to go down sort of a black hole on, on the internet and read people's opinions about this, you can easily do it. Um, people who say, well, slavery in the in the first century was nothing like what comes to our mind when we think about slavery. We think about slavery through the lens of American chattel slavery where men and women and children could be auctioned off and traded like property. It was nothing like that in the, in the first century. And you'll find people even going on to say, actually slavery was, I mean, it was kind of a loving thing because there were so many poor people that like having some people that were kind of taken in and cared for um, 
you can figure out where that goes. The point is simply, in the first century, slavery wasn't a big deal. It was taken for granted. And so when Paul says, slaves obey your master, he's not like saying anything that will seem a little bit jolting or troubling. With people like the Tribune Valerius on your side, um, to paraphrase the common expression, with supporters like that, who needs opponents? But it was into exactly that kind of world that Jesus came. And it was clear that he did not relate to women like the average Jewish man apparently did. Dorothy Sayers puts it like this in reflecting on the life of Jesus. Quote, Perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, who never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious, end quote. Among 21st century Christian egalitarians, the suggestion that wives should submit to their husbands as some biblical principle to be followed is every bit as culturally conditioned in their minds as the instructions to slaves. And then, of course, there's Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's a verse that will often be sort of embraced as kind of a starting point for going on to read texts like the Ephesians text and others in the epistles that say things that egalitarians aren't sure make any sense at all in a world like the one that we live in. The reality, of course, is that when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In fact, there still were Jews and Gentiles. And when he says there were neither slave nor free, in fact, there were still slaves and free people. In fact, he went on to give them instructions about how they were supposed to live. And it turns out there continued to be both males and females in, in this era, even though Galatians 3 says there aren't. So what's Galatians 3 saying? That's part of the question. 
Which leads to approach number three. What we find here in Ephesians 5 and 6 are principles that are timeless. And even though social contexts change dramatically, and even though applications might be very different across centuries and across cultures, there are principles which still should be identified and applied and lived. And this approach, I think, is roughly what complementarians conclude when we say, no, we can't quite go that full egalitarian place which says male and female, like no distinctions in marriage and church and church leadership. Complementarians say, no, there is a principle here that we have to wrestle with how we're going to apply even though context is completely different. And so we look at principles like submission, that wives are called to submit to husbands and husbands are called to love their wives. So does this mean wives aren't supposed to love their husbands? Well, no. Does it mean husbands never submit to wives? Well, no, because Paul begins this whole passage by saying submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, but then how's it supposed to actually work? Well, one way to read it is simply to say, look, in the context of a marriage, if a wife relates submissively to her husband who is relating to her with the kind of love that Christ exhibited to the church, namely that he laid down his life for her, you know, that sounds like a fairly happy arrangement, doesn't it? Like, it doesn't seem like that should be a context for a whole lot of fighting and struggle and tug of war. But maybe those assignments aren't exactly interchangeable either. Maybe there is, maybe there's something important about Paul's identifying this for wives and this for husbands. And how is this different? How might it be different than his instructions to slaves and masters, which we, for the most part, I think, are quite happy to say, well, that one's just gone away. Like, slavery has gone away. We still have employees, and we still have, you know, hierarchies, and we still have people who sort of give instructions and then employees that follow instructions. So maybe it's more like that now. The way the CMC Statement of Theology phrases it, and CMC, in case you don't know, is the body of churches that, that uh, owns RBC, and it's the theological context in which the teaching at RBC unfolds under the umbrella of CMC's Statement of Theology. 
CMC says it like this. Man was created in the, in the image of God, sinless in perfect holiness and fellowship with God, as male and female, equal before God as persons, and distinct in manhood and womanhood, with male responsibility for headship in the home and in the church. As a being of choice who willfully disobeyed God, bringing alienation, depravity, death, and eternal lostness to the human race through Adam's sin. So what's this business about male headship in the home and in the church? Footnote to this statement of theology. This statement is in harmony with the New Testament teaching that male and female as believers have equal access to God through Christ and are of equal standing in God's creative and redemptive plan with difference of function between men and women in leadership ministries in the church and in the home. So exactly how are those functions different? Exactly what are the sort of parameters that guide this allocation of function, this differentiation in sort of gender-linked functions in the home and in the church? Even among complementarians who say, as we do here at RBC, now there's a principle here that needs to be wrestled with. There's still a whole bunch of unanswered questions. Because if you read some of Paul's texts most literally, in the literal sense, back to principle one, Paul says women should be quiet. I don't allow women to speak. And there are Christians who take that approach, basically, to church life. Just say, well, you know, that's the literal reading of the text. Many complementarians, in contrast, say, well, no, there's a principle here that we need to keep working at and that we can't simply discard because culture's changed. And yet, there's so many ways that this can be played out. So what are they exactly? Can women teach in vacation Bible school? Should women teach at RBC? Should women speak in chapel? Is it okay for women to preach on Sunday morning since we don't, most places require people to be ordained to preach on Sunday morning? Those are the practical questions that complementarians are left wrestling with even when they agree that, no, somewhere here in approach three, extract the principle and figure out how to apply it. Even when they agree about that, there's still lots and lots of questions left to be answered. In an article about 15 years ago in relation to how Christians interpret scripture 
and particularly the questions of sort of more literal, more faithful versus a little more committed to big picture principles. Mark Knoll, who taught history for many years at Wheaton College, wrote an essay called Battle for the Bible. I'd like to read a few excerpts. In October 1845, Two able theologians debated the Bible's view of slavery in a public event in Cincinnati that went on for eight hours a day through four long days. You think your classes are long? Jonathan Blanchard spoke for the abolitionist position. Nathan Rice for the position that while the Bible pointed toward the eventual voluntary elimination of slavery, it nowhere called slavery evil as such. While Rice, the guy defending slavery, methodically tied Blanchard in knots over how to interpret the pro-slavery implications of specific texts, Blanchard returned repeatedly to the broad principle of common equity and common sense, to the general principles of the Bible, to the whole scope of the Bible, where to him it was obvious that the principles of the Bible are justice and righteousness. But Blanchard was exasperated with Rice's attention to particular passages Noel goes on to note that actually Rice, the guy defending slavery, probably did a better job of reading specific scriptural texts literally. And poor Blanchard was left pushing back against them, arguing from broader, more general principles that he thought sort of overrode the specific conclusions that you might draw from specific texts. With debate over the Bible and slavery at such a pass, and especially with the success of the pro-slavery biblical argument manifestly convincing to most Southerners and many in the North, difficulties abounded. The country had a problem because its most trusted religious authority, the Bible, was sounding an uncertain note. Was the Bible for slavery or was it against slavery? Turned out there were some pretty strong biblical arguments to be made in both directions. The evangelical Protestant churches had a problem because the mere fact of trusting implicitly in the Bible was not solving disagreements about what the Bible taught concerning slavery. The country and the churches were in trouble because the remedy that finally solved the question of how to interpret the Bible was recourse to arms. The supreme crisis over the Bible was that there existed no apparent biblical resolution to the crisis. And then this memorable concluding line from Noel. It was left to those consummate theologians, the Reverend Doctors Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman, 
to decide what, in fact, the Bible actually meant. They were, of course, the generals that led the armies from the north and the south. Specific texts versus broad principles. There's good reasons why passages like Ephesians 5 and 6 haven't been easy for the church to interpret with unanimity and timelessly, in a timeless way over the centuries. There's very good reasons for that. And I doubt that the conversations about how best to interpret them will go away anytime real soon. We continue to wrestle with scripture as the word of God for us and want to interpret it faithfully. And we continue that effort in our classes every day here at RBC. I invite you to stand and we're going to pray in conclusion. We're grateful, Lord, for your word. We're grateful for the way you, your word has brought life to the church over millennia. We pray for wisdom to be faithful readers of your word to us. I pray that you would give us grace as we discuss sometimes the differences we have in the way we read. And I pray also that you'd give us um, the grace of deep conviction, even in a context where we know not everyone has the same set of convictions. Help us to be faithful as children, as husbands, as wives, as masters, and as whatever this other category is, slaves or servants or employees or bond servants, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.